On November 20th, the Department of Health and Human Services released final rules amending the regulations to the Stark Law and the Anti-Kickback Statute. These final rules represent arguably the most significant changes to these regulations in the last decade. Over the next few weeks, we'll be diving into what each of these rules means and the impact on you and your organization. We encourage you to visit our resource center, mwe.com slash sprintready for all of the latest information. Let's start at the top. HHS stated its main purpose behind the sprint was to remove barriers to transitioning from a fee-for-service payment system to a value-based payment system. Monica, what do the final rules do to remove those barriers? Thanks, Tony. Um, well, CMS and OIG did go, in fact, to finalize their proposal to create three separate stark exceptions and three separate AKS safe harbors for value-based arrangements, all of which center around different organizations forming what's known as a value-based enterprise or a VBE. And this VBE is supposed to coordinate the activities of VBE participants towards a goal of achieving certain identified value-based purposes. Um, while these rules demonstrate a clear desire to afford the health industry the ability to implement arrangements that will in fact move towards a value-based system, the balancing of this interest against program integrity concerns resulted in what are fairly detailed definitions and regulatory requirements for all of these exceptions and safe harbors. Um, the six exceptions and safe harbor requirements vary depending upon the amount of risk the DBE participant assumes, um, either full risk for the care provided to a targeted patient population, some level of risk, or no risk. Changes from the proposed rule to the final rule that were actually favorable to providers in the healthcare community um, did result in, in, in several portions of the, the rules becoming more favorable. So, for example, in the full risk exception, CMS extended the pre-risk period from six months as proposed to 12 months in response to, uh, to comments from the industry. And in the meaningful downside financial risk exception requires the physician be responsible to pay or forego no less than 10% rather than paying 25% as proposed of the value of the remuneration that the physician receives under the value-based arrangement. So while the format of the exceptions and safe harbors was predominantly accepted in the final rules, there were some favorable changes, modifications that CMS and OIG took into account as a result of, of comments that were received. Um, and while CMS and OIG did coordinate in their rulemaking to create rules that use the same defined terms, the exceptions and safe harbors have some important differences. Um, for example, the Stark exceptions permit providing monetary and in-kind remuneration to VBE participants and do not exclude any type of entities from participating in a value-based enterprise. Um, OIG, on the other hand, specifically excluded pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, wholesalers, pharmacy benefit managers, lab companies, compounding pharmacies, and all medical device and supply manufacturers, distributors, wholesalers, and suppliers from being able to rely on all of the value-based safe harbors. Um, OIG's no-risk safe harbor also only protects in-kind remuneration, and recipients must contribute at least 15% of the offer's cost of fair market value of their remuneration. Um, so obviously some key differences, um, and, and there's certainly many more that we haven't specifically flagged here for you. Um, while commentators did request alignment, OAG noted that complete alignment just simply isn't feasible, given the broad range of conduct that implicates the AKS, and that safe harbor conditions are designed to ensure that protected arrangements are not disguised kickback schemes. Um, the differences between the SARC exceptions and the AKS safe harbors, as well as the complexity um, of all of the various requirements make it difficult to see how these rules will rapidly accelerate the transition to value-based payments. Um, organizations will certainly need time to fully digest the rules and determine whether it makes sense from a business perspective to embark on arrangements that rely on them, 
especially those that involve resharing for patient populations. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Joan to talk about um, all of the proposed changes to some of the most important terms um, in the Stark Law, including uh, changes to what we refer to as the big three definitions of commercial reasonableness, fair market value, and takes into account the volume or value. Thanks, Monica. We would have hoped that some of these uh, changes would make things very, very clear and sort of bright line logical. And in some cases, they have. In some cases, there's still some open questions for the industry. Rules do resolve some longstanding questions and, again, raise, raise some new questions that we hope will be resolved. So first, the things that are, are very positive. CMS finalized a number of clarifications of the terms, and in, in particular, um, with the commercial reasonableness and fair market value provided some additional guidance, as I'll get to a little later, that takes into account uh, requires a little bit more work and um, raises some ambiguities. For commercial reasonableness, CMS has now defined the term, which it did not do before, and it defines it in a way that's fairly flexible as to whether the arrangement makes sense and furthers a legitimate business purpose, and very importantly, also confirmed that an arrangement doesn't have to lead to a profit in order to be commercially reasonable, and this is very helpful in particular with respect to, for example, hospital systems that lose money on paying physicians um, they've now been assured that just losing money by itself does not mean that they violated commercial reasonableness. Of course, it's still necessary to show why it is commercially reasonable to lose whatever money is being lost. On the fair market value side, CMS simplified its proposed definition. And also it has confirmed that things like salary surveys are just a starting point for determining fair market value an arrangement can still be fair market value or payment to a physician if the compensation is higher or lower than the um, fair market value. Importantly, I think uh, CMS also removed the concept of something being fair market value and uh, if it doesn't take into account the volume or value of referrals, CMS has really separated uh, fair market value and takes into account. With respect to takes into account, CMS has um, defined takes into account in a way that's intended to be a bright line test and to say that compensation takes into account the volume or value of referrals only if there's a variable in the formula that causes compensation to increase or decrease based on referrals. CMS also confirmed its view that the comp if compensation is solely based on professional personally performed professional services, then it does not take into account the volume or value of referrals. For example, a WRVU rate is for professional services. If the WRVU rate is fair market value for the personally performed services, you don't have a take into account um, issue. Um, one place where um, the rules raise some new issues is that CMS left the existing unit-based special rules in the regulations, but says in the preamble that the special rules won't really have on um, unit-based compensation don't have any effect after the effective date of the rules. And this is where one, one place, I know we're not citing uh, regulations here, but if you look at 411.354, um, D2 and 3 are the unit-based rules, 
D5 and 6 are the new takes into account. In the preamble, CMS seems to make clear that the unit-based rules in effect go away after the effective date. And instead you look at the um, new takes into account definitions in D5 and 6, but there are cross references there that can make it confusing and it would be nice to get some additional uh, clarification from CMS. In, in addition, CMS made significant changes to the indirect compensation arrangements definition, um, proposing a new definition that wasn't covered in the proposed rule. Uh, the, the definition incorporates into the definition a sort of uh, takes into account concept. And as a result, a lot of uh, arrangements that were indirect compensation arrangements before and then had to be looked at under the indirect compensation exception now won't be indirect compensation arrangements at all. Um, one remaining question is whether um, one ramification that perhaps was not intended is that it appears that if there is an indirect arrangement where a physician is not paid fair market value and it's a fixed non-fair market value payment, it appears that's not either a direct or indirect compensation arrangement, so it would no longer be regulated by the state law. So in, in summary, these changes are going to have pretty far-reaching impacts on existing physician compensation arrangements. A lot of organizations are going to be looking at what they have to do to change their arrangements, either to uh, be either stricter or looser. And um, I, I think people are going to have to consider outreach to CMS to confirm um, some of the questions about exactly where the expansions and potential uh, restrictions reside. Next, I'm going to turn it over to Nick. What other regulatory modifications and clarifications has CMS made that will have a direct impact in the immediate future? And how about the long term? Well, thanks, Joan. Uh, yeah, I think outside of the big three, as we've said, and as Monica talked about the value-based arrangements, there's still a lot to chew on from a stark perspective uh, that will have uh, implications directly in the immediate future, as well as more long-term. Uh, specifically, you know, CMS has made a number of modifications that uh, in totem relieve the compliance regulatory burden of the Stark Law, especially from a quote unquote, you know, technical non-compliance standpoint. Of course, the Stark Law is all uh, technical because it's strict liability, but, but we're talking about some of those more nitpicky issues that uh, have, have bedeviled um, entities such as, you know, the signature requirements, the writing requirements, uh, and those types of things. So in effect, though, what we, we see is uh, uh, modifications that should hopefully make it so that entities will not have to make a self-disclosure uh, surrounding those technical non-compliant pieces. Uh, changes that kind of fall into this bucket include clarification surrounding the set in advance requirement and that it's not required to be in writing. Uh, in fact, CMS confirmed that that is a deeming provision, that if, if compensation is uh, in writing, it will be deemed to be set in advance. It also, CMS also expanded the grace period for obtaining signatures. It also allows for uh, clarified its, its policy surrounding modifications to compensation uh, terms in arrangements. It also promulgated a new limited remuneration exception that I think will be very 
helpful to uh, to entities that are kind of entering into arrangements with physicians at a last minute or or, or in a in, in circumstances where they haven't had time to kind of create a formal a formal document. Uh, they've also limited the definition of DHS to make clear that inpatient hospital services are only DHS if the furnishing of the service is going to affect the amount of Medicare payment under the inpatient uh, payment systems for, for uh, different hospital facilities, not just um, IPPS, but also rehabilitation facilities, inpatient psychiatric facilities, and long-term care hospitals. Also importantly, CMS has provided some additional clarification surrounding the period of disallowance and changes to that period of disallowance uh, that allow entities to cure live arrangements, but also retroactively reconcile uh, arrangements that may have ended and were non-compliant uh, within 90 days, uh, assuming certain, you know, certain facts are, are present there. So what I think is most important a takeaway with regard to these changes is that a lot of these proposals kind of all work together and allow parties to almost ride a wave into compliance. So for instance, let's take a hospital uh, that has put in place a last minute call coverage agreement that's not going to meet any of the compensation exceptions because for instance, it's not in writing and the compensation cannot be shown to be set in advance. Well, parties could now, once these rules are finalized, first rely on the limited remuneration exception uh, to protect the arrangement that may not have all those elements required to satisfy another compensation exception. CMS uh, had proposed to include up to $3,500 in the proposed rule for this limited remuneration exception per year. That's gonna be adjusted for inflation but CMS actually went a step further and up that to $5,000 adjusted for inflation each year. So it should have increased utility. So, so hospital going back to the hypothetical uh, could start by relying on that limited remuneration exception to cover the call coverage agreement. Uh, and then over time, the parties may be able to cobble together enough data uh, to rely on uh, a PSA, the personal services arrangement exception or the fair market value exception. Um, and even if those are not, perhaps they don't have a writing or signature present, uh, the parties could then avail themselves of the special rules that have been, that are being uh, finalized uh, for writings and signature requirements that after 90 days, um, they will hopefully have what would amount to a collection of documents that would satisfy all relevant requirements um, of an exception or alternatively be able to sign a formal contract. So in essence, you know, all these different elements working together will hopefully allow parties to not have um, a non-compliant issue when it comes to some of these more technical um, requirements of the Stark Law. Uh, and then let's move and say that the same hospital uh, hospital's accounting department had a footfall and has been paying, you know, this physician that's providing call coverage arra uh, arrangements uh, the wrong amount that doesn't represent fair market value. Well, CMS has now said that uh, they can, you can cure a live arrangement and fix those amounts uh, by by moving it back to what is outlined in the actual contract. And CMS in the final rule has said that even if an arrangement has ended. 
So long as those payments are reconciled within 90 days of the arrangement's expiration, the parties may still not have an instance of noncompliance. So I think in the short term, these are just really important and helpful changes to the, to the industry and, and should make a big impact on these technical violations. I think over the longer term, uh, the one policy that, that sticks out to me is related to physician group practices and that they will need to look at potentially changing their profit share distributions based on the finalized rule. Um, the, the finalized rule does make clear that group practices may not use uh, DHS-specific pods for purposes of distributing DHS profits. Um, while, and, and this is a very common practice for um, specialty groups, uh, CMS is saying you cannot be breaking those DHS services by type, uh, such as a, you know, an imaging pod, a lab pod. You have to pull all the DHS of at least five positions together to satisfy that definition of overall profits. Um, and so this will have a big impact. However, it's important to note that CMS clarified a group practice can utilize different distribution methodologies to do, distribute shares of overall profits from all DHS of each of its components that is consisting of at least five physicians, uh, of course, provided that the compensation is not directly related to the volume or value of that physician's referrals. And the same methodology is going to be used for all the physicians that are in that uh, component of at least five physicians. Importantly, CMS has delayed the effective date of this portion of the final rule to January 1st, 2022. So, so groups have uh, an opportunity to change their methodologies um, and, and this will not be taking effect as other elements of the final rule uh, will. So, so groups have a little bit more time to, to fix their uh, profit share distribution methodologies um, rather than uh, rush to, to change things uh, immediately with the turn of the new, new year coming. I'd like to move on and uh, focus a little bit more on the anti-kickback statute and, and hear about uh, some of the noteworthy changes to the safe harbors that we, we think may reduce the regulatory burden. And Tony, I was hoping you could provide us some of your thoughts uh, surrounding some of those changes. Thanks, Nick. Uh, there, OIG did uh, reduce regulatory burden in some of its proposals in, in the finalized rule. Uh, in a couple of different ways. The most significant one being, uh, and the one that probably will have the most applicability to, to more, more organizations is the change to the personal services and management contract safe harbor. Uh, it had two requirements in it that made it uh, not terribly useful from a practical perspective. One, that if it was a part-time arrangement, you had to specify the schedule that services were provided. And two, that the aggregate compensation needed to be set in advance, which essentially meant that only a flat fee compensation structure would meet the safe harbor. Uh, OIG changed that safe harbor to now provide for, so long as the methodology for the compensation uh, is set in advance, uh, you can meet the, it, it removed the aggregate compensation requirement and now need, you need to have the methodology for the compensation be set in advance. Um, this will allow per hour uh, compensation structures to fit within the safe harbor. 
um, but probably not much more else because there's still the requirement that the compensation not be determined in a way that takes into account volume or value of referrals or other business generated. But it does expand the use of the safe harbor to more arrangements. Uh, OIG also created uh, a new outcomes-based payment safe harbor to protect payments outside of the value-based context um, that could be considered designed to, to meet gain-sharing arrangements. Um, so this outcome-based payment safe harbor uh, has to have a payment that is triggered by achieving one or more legitimate outcomes uh, that are selected based on clinical evidence or credible medical support to improve quality, reduce costs, or both. Um, there are a number of requirements in the safe harbor, uh, but the main uh, focus of it is that the payment is triggered by uh, achieving a particular outcome measure that is legitimate, um, that is based on uh, clinical evidence or credible medical support. Um, However, it would not protect payments that are based, that are triggered solely based on the organization's internal cost reduction. So there has to be either some sort of improvement care and cost reduction to programs, to the federal healthcare programs, not just to an internal cost reduction. Um, since most gain sharing arrangements are structured around internal cost savings, it, it would seem like many arrangements that you know are that uh, are, are engaged in today probably would not meet the safe harbor. Um, again, that doesn't mean you know as has always been the case. Safe harbors are voluntary. You do not have to meet a safe harbor in order to avoid violating the anti-kickback statute. You then go into a facts and circumstances analysis. Um, OIG also modified the local transportation safe harbor. Uh, to increase the limit to transportation in rural areas to 75 miles and removed a trans uh, limit on distance for related to patients being discharged from inpatient facilities. Um, and OIG also created, uh, and we're going to talk about this in more detail on a future video, but a number of uh, technology-based uh, changes. Um, one of which, the most significant of which probably is a new patient engagement safe harbor that permits providing tools and supports to patients um, in a way to help manage and coordinate their care. Importantly, uh, that safe harbor is only available to participants in a value-based enterprise. And uh, many of the uh, entities that Monica listed as being ineligible are to participate in value-based or to uh, avail themselves of the value-based safe harbors are also unable to avail themselves of the patient engagement safe harbor with some limited exceptions for uh, certain device uh, manufacturers. Uh, the OIG also finalized proposals around the EHR uh, safe harbor as did CMS on the EHR safe harbor exception um, that they tend to expand and make those safe harbors permanent. Um, so there are a number of technology-based and, and other uh, changes that are in the that were in the anti-kickback statute rule um, that we're not going to talk about on this video, but we'll talk about on uh, subsequent videos. 
in order to wrap this up, I wanted to ask Monica to, to close with the top one or two uh, things or takeaways that our viewers should consider given these final rules. Great. Thanks so much, Tony. Yes, I think given everything we've heard and talked about, um, organizations in particular with respect to the CMS Stark Law exceptions need to focus on their physician compensation arrangements. Um, as Nick alluded to, there are certain components of the group practice um, changes that are having a delayed effective date, but for other arrangements um, that are relying upon various definitional changes as the ones that Joan alluded to earlier, um, organizations really need to give their, their existing physician compensation relationships um, a review and see whether or not there's any specific changes that need to be need to be implemented. Um, with respect to that timing consideration, we do want to point out, um, while most of the Stark and AKS rules state an effective date of January 19th, 2021, the official scheduled publication date of these rules is December 2nd, 2020, which does create some doubt under the Congressional Review Act about whether these rules can go into effect prior to the Biden administration's inauguration on January 20th. Um, typically, new administrations hold any regulations that have not gone into effect by inauguration day or shortly thereafter in order to give them time to review. Um, although we, we understand that the um, AKS and, and Stark rules um, are largely technical and there is uh, bipartisan nature to many of these issues, um, the rules may go into effect for that reason. Um, however, we, we would be remiss to not point out some of the timing considerations especially given the new administration and the timing considerations are obviously very important to organizations who may need to make significant changes to some of their physician relationships. So I think with that, we've wrapped it up and we look forward to um, talking with you on future webinars and video casts. Um, and we also hope that you'll join us in reading some of our publications that will be posted on the regulatory sprint website. Please visit mwe.com slash sprint ready for more information.